electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. And hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange on this Friday. What do you do with Bitcoin now? Famed value investor Bill Miller joins us in just a moment for an exclusive interview. He was early betting on the cryptocurrency, which has soared over $41,000 today. We will get his latest thoughts on crypto, crude, and more. Plus, corporate debt relief is an economic dud. That's what former FDIC chair Sheila Baer says in a new op-ed. Why and what should the Fed do instead? We'll ask her. And the disconnect between soaring stocks and the individual investor. Should you pull back on risk or not? We'll explore all of that ahead today. But first, let's get the latest market moves. Dom Chu here with more on that. Hi, Dom. All right. So, Kelly, on this Friday, we should at some point pull back from record highs, but it won't be today. The Dow is modestly lower, but for the S&P 500, still holding above that 3,800 mark, and for the Nasdaq composite, over that 13,000 mark. By the way, modest gains here for the S&P, outperformance in the Nasdaq, but both of these get gold stars because they both hit record intraday highs at some point in trading today. Take a look at one of the other themes developing right now. Look at these reflation or economically sensitive type stocks hitting record highs. Every one of these has hit a record high so far today. Target, speaking to the consumer perhaps. Applied Materials, a leading indicator for the semiconductor chip business. BlackRock, the world's biggest asset manager, up on the day as well. And Fastenal on the industrial side. All of these stocks have made record highs today. So perhaps a little bit of commentary about where investors think that economically sensitive part of the market will go. Still to the upside at this point. We'll see if it pulls back at some point. And then you mentioned Bitcoin. I don't know. I don't even know what to say about it right now. It's forty one thousand one forty four in coin metrics. The last trade there up by about six percent. It's been a fairly volatile trade intraday so far today, though. But still, these moves higher at some point, it will come down. But right now, Kelly, for those people who follow statistics <laughs> out there, it is now about three standard deviations above its 50 day average price. For those of you that, that don't follow statistics, it just means it's a very, very rare occurrence for it to go this high this quickly. The overall market cap for Bitcoin now over a trillion dollars. This is something to watch, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. Yep, Bitcoin and all the other cryptos. Dom, thank you. It's exactly where we're going to pick things up right now, Dom Chu. One big believer in Bitcoin for years now has been Bill Miller of Miller Value Partners. In his latest newsletter to investors, he wrote, Warren Buffett famously called Bitcoin rat poison. He may well be right. Bitcoin could be rat poison and the rat could be cash. Joining me now with more on crypto and his broader investment strategy for 2021 is Bill Miller. He's the chairman chief investment officer at Miller Value Partners. Bill, it's great to have you back. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly, and nice to be back. I, I, in some ways, think you kicked off this whole thing uh, in early November. You were on this program. We talked about a number of different things that day. I asked you about Bitcoin because I know you've been a bull on it for some time. But at the end of the interview, and this was when Bitcoin was just under $15,000, I think, I said to you, of all of the things we've discussed, you know, what are you most excited about? Or is there an emerging technology that you're excited about? And you said, I'm most excited about Bitcoin. 
Are you as excited today, Bill, with it at 41,000 as you were when it was under 15? Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about Bitcoin is that um, it gets less risky the higher it goes. And that's the opposite of what happens with most stocks. But because Bitcoin is so early in the adoption cycle, I mean, you can't even even though the OCC will allow all the big banks and investment banks to custody or to buy and sell Bitcoin, none of you can't do that at any of them. So they're permitted to, but they haven't done it yet because basically I think they're concerned. And but every day, Bitcoin's a supply demand story. There's 900 new Bitcoins created every day. It's estimated that PayPal and Square alone are buying their customers are buying all of those. And Bitcoin's total supply is growing less than 2% a year. And it's obvious by the price that the demand is growing much, much faster than that. So as long as, as, long as those, that obtains, Bitcoin is likely to go higher and perhaps considerably higher. How much higher, Bill? Because one of the questions, there's this kind of the two sides of the same coin people are asking right now. The ones who have been in Bitcoin are saying, okay, you know, am I getting too greedy? Is it time to sell, take a little profit? The ones who haven't been in are similarly asking, do they wait for the inevitable pullback? You heard what Dom said, where three standard deviations uh, moves above normal. Do they wait for the pullback if they want to buy some? What would your advice be? Well, so Dom makes a good point that, you know, three standard deviations is, is fairly extreme. But the issue is, though, when, when Bitcoin has these moves, as it did in 2017, you, you go to those levels of standard deviation because Bitcoin tends to move in spurts, which tend to be followed by corrections. I think there have been three corrections of 80 percent, which is which is normal in this type of very, very early technology with a very, very big total addressable market. But for those people who were waiting for the pullback, they got it in the first quarter. I mean, you could have bought Bitcoin at, what, four or $5,000 in the first quarter. But the nature of almost any correction is that when things correct sharply, the stock market went, went down 38% because of COVID. And if people were waiting for, that, for a correction to buy, they weren't buying, they were selling. So that's what typically happens is that once things correct, those that are waiting for the correction, then are waiting for the correction to keep going lower. And then when they miss it on the upside, they're waiting for, uh, you know, they're asking if they should buy it. Bill, so one of the, the ways that which you've made this analogy for years now with Bitcoin and, and why you think it's attractive is starting to play out this year. You've likened it to the market cap of gold, said if people start to hold it akin to gold, it could have huge upside. You've also said, and we've seen this as well, that people are putting their cash in. Even John Nigerian on Halftime Report, I mean, that's been one of his strategies is holding some of his cash in Bitcoin. So those... You know, those two factors have been part of the argument. But I don't know if you saw last week, J.P. Morgan, which uh, a few weeks back had put out a note saying, to your point, you know, that if in institutional investors put just a half a percent or, or less than that of their portfolios in Bitcoin, we're talking about, you know, it doubling. And it has since they wrote that note. Their latest note, they say they're not so sure that further upside is sustainable. They say that it's more volatile than gold. It, ha it behaves differently. Uh, you know, they, you can't just assume that all of these institutional players are going to pile in uh, to that extent. So is that argument kind of running its course? Have we already seen most of the upside that's going to come from people and the huge uh, big money players getting involved with Bitcoin? Or do you really think that it's sustainable much higher from here? The, the, Kelly, the, the Fed has told you that they, they're going to pin interest rates at zero for the foreseeable future. And we just hit inflation expectations or the, the break-even inflation rate just across 2%, which has only been, it's only happened two quarters in the last 10 years. And so if you look at that, if you hold your money in cash, it's a guaranteed loser. 
by at least 2% a year. So taking some portion of the cash balances on that people have in their savings or that companies have on their balance sheets, especially the big cash rich companies, that seems to me a no brainer. I mean, if you put one or 2% of your of your cash into that, I mean, you can afford to lose that if Bitcoin happens to happens to be an ultimate failure. I don't think it will, but nonetheless, you can still afford it. But what you can't afford is to have your cash balances eroded by 2% a year or more if the Fed keeps interest rates pinned at zero. And as I think uh, Larry Lindsay might have been talking about earlier, wage inflation starts to really mm-hmm. heat up. So I, I think it's more, it's more a risk management strategy than anything else to have a little bit of money in in Bitcoin and very, you know, uh, Square put 50 million in, Mass Mutual put 100 million in. Michael Saylor at at, uh, at MicroStrategy has, you know, uh, over a billion dollars in Bitcoin. He's got all of the company's cash in Bitcoin, and I think that that's, you know, I, that that may be a bit extreme, but but uh, it's no more extreme than having all of your cash uh, get with, as a guaranteed loser. One more question on this. It's a point that my dad has made time and again, where he he says, "Listen, there's no way." federal regulators are going to just let this thing go and go and go. And to his point, in the last month or so, we've seen new guidance coming out uh, that is requiring some of these uh, providers like Square to keep contact information of parties in both sides of a Bitcoin transaction. Now, your your point is not that Bitcoin is valuable because it's being used for nefarious purposes, quite the opposite. But is there a risk, uh, a regulatory risk here that there's no way this thing can just keep going and going without government pushback. I think you know we, we've had concerns all along about various regulatory uh, actions that it could have been taken. Concerns about the Chinese uh, potential digital currency, what that might mean for Bitcoin. The problem is, is as my son says, with Bitcoin, I mean, you can't cut the head off the snake here. It's decentralized. So if if the U.S. government tries to put regulations in that are so onerous. Uh, uh, for Bitcoin, then the people that would own Bitcoin or want to own Bitcoin will just go to other exchanges overseas that are less regulated and that are more opaque. So I think that uh, you mentioned that, that that series of guidelines that came down from from FinCEN. There's been, I think, close to 7,000 comments on that. Uh, and I think that while that is that would be negative for Bitcoin, the market clearly isn't worried about it because that guidance came out two weeks ago and Bitcoin has gone has gone straight up since then. So it may be the case that the people in the Bitcoin market, and again, I don't know what, what everybody's thinking, that to the extent that, that, that the government tries to do something like this, it just makes it, it just shows that it's more valuable. Namely, it's something that what Bitcoin is trying to protect you against is the, the sorts of things that happen in Venezuela or Nigeria or Argentina where the government wipes you out or, or confiscates your money. Or as Franklin D. Roosevelt did in 1933, uh, 32 or 33, confiscate your gold. So I, I think it's, it's um, something that you have to expect that it's going to be very, very volatile. If you can't take the volatility, you should, probably shouldn't own it. But the volatility is the price you pay for performance. So the final point on this bill, then, is you've kind of ruled out the prospect of a deep correction, said that we, we already saw that in the first quarter of last year. Um, and because you have to think about this realistically for your investors every day, you know, do, do you stay exposed? And if so, for how long? What is your price target for Bitcoin? When is Bill Miller selling out or under what conditions uh, if we're not seeing them right now? Well, first of all, we, we own Bitcoin in a, in a, a partnership that... Um, my colleague Samantha McLemore started recently called Patient Capital, and it's about a 5% position in there. But we don't own it in the fund because we really, it's very, very difficult to do that. We're looking right now at the regulatory uh, aspects of that and, and considering uh, having the SEC uh, give us the go ahead to do that in our funds. 
But that's part of the issue on Bitcoin. It's, Bitcoin's got where it is with, with basically, it's very, very difficult for the average person to access through their normal channels, which is why Grayscale and, 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 and people like that have done so well. So in terms of a price target, I don't have a price target. I have some price expectations, which I think that Bitcoin from here anyway should, uh, you know, should probably be up 50 to 100% from here in the next, I'd say, 12 to 18 months. And if you were to ask me the over or under on that, I would definitely, I would definitely say it would be much more likely to be higher than lower. But again, I want to emphasize, you said that I thought the big correction was over. I, I, don't, I have no idea what the correction is going to be if there's a correction. Uh, you know, we've had three 80% corrections. If, I think if you can't take that, then you probably should not own Bitcoin. Well, and to your point, if we're talking about that kind of upside, that would be sixty dollars to $80,000 over the next 12 to 18 months. All right. So I, you're sticking with it. Uh, you know, we just it's a perfect time to check in, Bill, after this extraordinary uh, parabolic move higher that we've seen. So while you're here, let me ask you about what else, you know, if anything is on par with Bitcoin in terms of your enthusiasm for 2021. But given everything that, that is kind of underpinning this discussion as it relates to the Fed and inflation and, and other things, and as we see the 10-year yield go to 1.1% today, where, what's your advice for investors? You know, can you stick with growth? Do you have to look to kind of traditional value? I mean, just kind of talk us through how you'd be positioned uh, outside of crypto. I, I think that you know the, the the so-called growth names or the fang names have dominated the market for for many years. Um, we had a value rotation that began in September of 2019, and then and, and consider uh, 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 continued till 2020 until the pandemic hit. And then growth came back online again. But since uh, it, just in the past few months, uh, value has taken over again. Yeah, Amazon, for example, which has always been one of our largest holdings, is flat for the last six months. And the other, the other big fang stocks uh, have basically, I think, gone sideways. And so I, I, think, that, I think that we're going to, in a value rotation, it should probably last you know, 12 months at least. But I don't think that those big growth names are, are going to go down significantly uh, I think they may underperform value, but I think the market is broadening out here because the deflationary risks that we've seen for the past 10 years, I think, are done. And now the risks are to the inflation side, which means that the risks are that growth will be higher than people expect. Pricing power will be greater than people expect. And the Fed is going to be on hold for a considerable period of time. So that's the recipe for the, for the, the, uh, I just say the extension and broadening of the bull market that we've been in. And you're a stock picker. So what does that mean in terms of, you know, I can imagine some sectors, maybe energy, banks, that kind of thing. But what are the plays? Yes, I think, you know, banks have underperformed. Financials have underperformed. They're outperforming so far this year. They're underperforming today. But they're a big beneficiary of a, of a steepening yield curve, as I wrote in my last two uh, shareholder letters. We've actually begun to buy some energy names. This is, this is uh, quite unusual because I've hated energy for most of my career. We, the only time we actually got went big in energy was in 1986, which was some time ago. But I think right now, I think right now that the that the pricing, the price expectations, or just say the expect the valuation expectations that are built into energy stocks today are such that there there are some opportunities there. And again, owning an energy stock now, the worst performing group in the last 10 years, owning some energy stocks right now does provide you some protection on the inflation side, and it also should uh, you know it also should help out on the on the side, if, if growth is bigger, and the, the Saudis uh, took a fairly big cut to their uh, their production the other day, I don't know how long that'll last. But I think the risk reward in, in energy is okay and is solid. And then there, you know, there's a there's just a bunch of other names 
DXC technology, which is you know the merger of computer sciences and the mm-hmm. old Hewlett Packard enterprises, they they got a, a takeover um, uh, approach yesterday from a French company, and the stock was up about ten percent. Um, but that that takeover approach, I would expect uh, and I would hope that um, Mike Scalvino and uh, Salvino, the, the CEO and the board would reject, and I would expect them to do so. I mean, this is a stock that was seventy a couple of years ago. And the, the people expect it to um, be a secular decliner. We expect it to be at, at worst uh, uh, flat secularly in terms of revenues. But but uh, Mike thinks that they can actually grow. And if they can grow, then it's a $70 name again. So I, that's a name where it would have to be much, much higher for us to be interested in selling out. So that's that's one. And then ADT, a longtime favorite. Um, ADT has, has mm-hmm. gone nowhere. It, it came at 14 and it's about eight right now. And it is, I think, a great, great company. I, I mentioned to uh, Jeff Bezos a couple of years ago that they should buy ADT, and uh, they, they obviously didn't buy ADT. But Google has now come in and made a significant investment in ADT, and you know it's the it's the largest company in an absolutely essential service. It generates a ton of free cash flow. It's a very flat, fragmented business, and I think there's very little risk in ADT uh, today. And then, and just two other two yeah, other but- examples quickly. If, uh, one is a company called Desktop Metals, DM. So um, 3D Systems, DDD, is up 150% in the last uh, couple of days. Uh, I'm not quite sure why that is, but that's the old 3D printing technology. And Desktop Metals is basically the future of 3D printing and what's called additive manufacturing. So, And they're, they're started by a bunch of MIT scientists. They're ringed with patents. And I think this, over the next several years, maybe not over the next several months, but over the next several years will be great. And then lastly... Um, uh, uh, online purchasing of used cars has about a 1% market share. And a company called Varum, VRM, came public uh, last year. And it was started by the, the management that was behind bookings.com, which has about a $70 billion market value. And so we think this one can grow, you know, 30, 40% a year with a capital light model for as far as the eye can see. There's 42,000 auto dealers out there so that they can take share from. So there's a, those are two names. Well, and we saw ADT uh, uh, spike as you were discussing them. Bill, I have two final questions. The first one is if you're still a big holder of Alibaba. And if so, I mean, David Faber has had to come out with reporting about the fact that he's not disappearing. He's just lying low. I mean, I don't have to tell you about what's been going on there. Do you still have exposure and, and would you maintain it here? Oh, yeah. We think, we think that that's given you a buying opportunity in, in Alibaba. I mean, the, the, the Chinese government doesn't want Alibaba to fail. They just want to make sure that that Jack Ma or whoever's whoever's running these companies kind of uh, uh, you know follows the party line on things. And and uh, Jack Ma was very critical of the uh, of the regulatory system in China, and it was no surprise that they're they're coming down on him. But um, but you know that that the stock trades now at around 17 times their fiscal 22 earnings, which is extraordinarily low for a company of that scope and reach, not just in China but globally. So yeah, I think it's attractive here. These, if you own names in places like China, you have to expect uh, volatility and, and to get surprised from time to time. But the real question is, what's the impact on earnings and cash flow over the next couple of years? And we, we see very little on that. Interesting, interesting, because that one also has been on the skids. And Bill, I want to ask you, because you've talked a uh, great length, and again, for years, about your enthusiasm for Bitcoin, but it is odd that it and Tesla are behaving almost the same way lately. And, you know, I can remember maybe years ago, we talked about maybe GM and Ford being interesting investment opportunities, but I've never heard Tesla uh, be one that you 
are necessarily looking to. Do you just have any thoughts on why its price action is so eerily similar to that of Bitcoin or, or what is going on uh, with that stock? With Tesla? Or, well, yeah, sure. Yeah. So uh, we, we actually looked at Tesla before people knew about it. And that was one of the big investing mistakes because, you know, I think it was trading on, on the original stock at around $25. And, and, uh, and it, then it went to $28. I said, I'll oh, forget it. It's, it's too expensive. So uh, right now what's <laughs> happened with, with Tesla is that, I mean, everybody considers it the, the, you know, the giant disruptor in the auto market. And to, to date anyway, none of the major competitors have been able to come out with a product that anybody really wants to buy relative to Tesla's stuff. So if you look at the size of the global auto market, you know, Tesla's price is not necessarily out of whack. If they were to get, you know, 50 or 75 percent of the market eventually down the road. But right now, I think it's I think it's just going up because it's going up. And, uh, you know, at, at, at some point, I mean, the market right now for companies that are the true disruptors, the market doesn't care about valuation. And so people just want to go to the company that is perceived to be the leading disruptor. And Tesla is that. I mean, if I were Elon Musk uh, and I would I had a market value of what Tesla's market cap is, I would buy General Motors. And then I pick up global, you know, global manufacturing, a great balance sheet, huge free cash flow, a, a strategy which is actually good. And Mary Barra has got, a, I think, their, their, their electric strategy is probably as good as anybody's out there. I, I don't think that's going to happen, but it's, but nonetheless, if it's strategically, that would make a whole lot uh, a lot of sense. Or or selling a lot of stock here. That's the other thing they could do. That's fascinating, uh, Bill. Before we go, we're seeing markets take a leg lower here, and gold as well down about four percent. Uh, Democratic Senator Manchin saying he opposes two thousand dollars stimulus checks, and so we don't know what the fate yet of that relief package will be. Um, do you think that that any of these are buying opportunities? I mean, for stocks broadly, I haven't asked you. Uh, gold, I think you're also quite bullish on, and uh, is that predicated on more uh, stimulus coming from D.C. this year? I, I would just say that I, I do think gold is attractive here, but. Anybody who owns gold and does not own at least half as much Bitcoin as they own gold, I think, is making a big mistake. I also think that Senator Manchin's comment here is really significant. I, I hadn't heard that before. But, you know, people are worried now uh, that the government, that the, that the Senate will be controlled by the Democrats, which it, which it will be mathematically. But the, the, the key is going to be people like uh, Senator Manchin uh, from West Virginia, Senator Collins, the moderates. And nothing is going to get passed if they can't get the moderates uh, and the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, for that matter, to go along with it. So I, I think that, that that to me is a sign that if he isn't interested in two, $2,000 stimulus package right now, then I'm, I'm pretty sure he's not interested in a, you know, a, uh, a capital gains tax rate that's equal to the ordinary income rate, which is part of the Democratic platform. So I, I would be I'd, I'd be encouraged by that with respect to the types of things that can be gotten done legislatively. I think it's going to have to be bipartisan. And I think it's not going to be radical. It'll tilt to the center left, but that's okay. And that's good for stocks, presumably. Then. Oh yeah, a absolutely. I mean, I, I I would not own bonds here when the when basically we've still got, you know, eighteen trillion dollars of global bonds and and inflation rates are headed higher. So that that's not a recipe for a successful investment. Bill, it's been great to have you today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kelly, and and we'll see you in several months, right? Back on the air. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Going to be a dramatic uh, weekend over here. Bill Miller yeah. of Miller Value Partners joining me.
Let's get to the latest out of Washington. As I just mentioned, some headlines uh, on top of what's already been a dramatic week. The president already back on Twitter, acknowledging for the first time that a new administration will be inaugurated Jan 20th. All this as several of his cabinet members have now resigned and we're expecting to hear from the president-elect in the next few moments. Kayla Tausche is here with more for us. Kayla. Hey, Kelly, the question now is how much longer the president's uh, term will last and if President Trump's term will go all the way until January 20th. House Democrats are on a call that's ongoing right now discussing next steps for a possible uh, second impeachment of the president with that process potentially beginning as soon as Monday, according to NBC News. Speaker Nancy Pelosi is telling colleagues that she is expected to speak with President-elect Joe Biden later today to discuss the option which House Democratic leadership had said in recent days was sort of a backup option if Vice President Pence did not remove Trump uh, from office himself through the 25th Amendment. Some Republicans who voted against Trump's last impeachment, like Nebraska Senator Ben Sass, have suggested they could support it this time. But others like West Virginia moderate Joe Manchin, a Democrat, have raised doubts it would succeed this time. Now, three sources familiar with the matter tell me that Secretaries Mnuchin and Pompeo are among the cabinet secretaries uh, who separately explored the possibility of the 25th Amendment in recent days, but it was seen as too lengthy and uncertain a process to succeed. And so the conclusion was to let the clock run out on Trump's presidency and hope that family members could convince him of a detente. In the meantime, Speaker Pelosi issued a statement saying today she spoke with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff about the remaining days of Trump's presidency and said that she wanted to prevent Trump from, in her words, initiating military hostilities or accessing the launch codes for a potential nuclear strike. Kelly? Kayla, so many different developments. I just wanted to mention this one uh, that the Washington Post is reporting about Senator Manchin and his potential opposition uh, to $2,000 direct stimulus checks. We did just hear some thoughts from Bill Miller and others, but I guess, I mean, Manchin is a, probably the significant player now uh, who has to take the pulse of his constituents and decide which way he's going to go on all of these big agenda items. Well, Manchin is one of the most closely watched members in the Senate, and even more so now than than ever. People on Capitol Hill are joking that he is the new majority leader, not uh, it, not Senator Chuck Schumer, uh, because it is the moderate caucus that will be able to determine which policies succeed and which fail. And Manchin's in a difficult spot here. He was elected as a Democrat, uh, but West Virginia was uh, the second widest margin of victory for Trump, the widest margin of victory for Trump in 2016 and the second widest in 2020. So clearly there is a very conservative constituency in the state, even though he was elected as a Democrat, uh, but his views are going to be extremely closely watched. And that's another reason why his views on impeachment and the pulse that he's taking of his colleagues on both sides of the aisle is seen sort of as a bellwether here in this moment, Kelly. It is. And we see markets selling off on that uh, as well to some extent, maybe taking some of those odds out uh, of betting markets. Kayla, thanks. Kayla Tausche in D.C. for us. Take a quick break here. Coming up, despite all the recent turmoil we've seen, the markets do continue to climb for the most part. Individual investors are scratching their heads over the seeming disconnect and what to do about it. We'll explore that. And more encouraging vaccine news around the globe. And boy, do we need it as deaths in the U.S. cross 4,000 for the first time. And London grapples with the super outbreak. We've got all the latest right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on markets. We're at session lows right now after those comments the Washington Post attributes to Joe Manchin, uh, the West Virginia senator, saying he would potentially oppose $2,000 stimulus checks. The Dow's down 153 points. The S&P's down five. The Nasdaq's still up about a quarter of a percent. You can see in the sectors, discretionary is leading the way today with a 1% gain. Tech is slightly positive, but on the flip side, industrials, financials, and materials are your biggest decliners. Here are some of the individual movers. Check out U.S. Steel, which is jumping on a double upgrade from Deutsche Bank to buy from sell. The firm says it's positioned for impressive cash flow and greater leverage thanks to elevated steel prices. Deutsche also highlighting the potential for greater infrastructure spending driven by a Democratic-controlled Senate. The market's already come to this conclusion. U.S. Steel is up 34% this week. Next, from trash to treasure, shares of Roku are higher on the announcement. It has acquired the catalog of failed streaming startup Quibi. Roku adding 3.5% today. And another day and another all-time high for Tesla. Analysts over at Evercore out with a note confessing, quote, we have been on the considerably wrong side of Tesla for over a year now. This week alone, Tesla has added a GM's worth of market cap. It's practically done that today. It's up 6% to 868. Tesla is now bigger uh, than, uh, or what should I say, I should mention here, actually, we just spoke to Bill Miller a few moments ago, the value investor. In case you missed it, I asked Bill about the Tesla price action. He said didn't have an opinion on it per se, but thought at this point, Tesla should just buy GM and take advantage of its global manufacturing base. Uh, Tesla's market cap is now worth more than Facebook's. It's over $800 billion. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Good to see you. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. Lawyer Sidney Powell, a key player in the effort to reverse Joe Biden's election, is being sued by Dominion Voting Systems for defamation. The company wants damages of more than $1.3 billion, accusing Powell of falsely claiming Dominion rigged the election, had bribed Georgia officials, and was created in Venezuela to rig elections for Hugo Chavez. The FBI has released this photo of a possible suspect and is offering a reward of up to $50,000 for information leading to the person or people responsible for leaving two pipe bombs at the Republican and Democratic National Committee headquarters on Wednesday. Officials say the devices were found before they exploded but could have caused great harm. And on the 10th anniversary of the shootings that killed six and wounded 13 others, including Representative Gabby Giffords, Bells rang out in Tucson to honor those victims. And a color guard escort as well. Kelly, you are up to date. I will send it back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. In fact, we have more breaking news coming in now. Kayla Tausche rejoins us with that. Kayla? 
Well, Kelly, one of the many jarring images from Wednesday's siege of the Capitol included a man sitting at the desk of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi with his feet up on the desk. And we now just learned that his name is Richard Barnett. He was seen in that photo and he's just been arrested in Arkansas by authorities and charged with entering and remaining on restricted grounds with violent entry and with theft of public property. We are awaiting more details, but we learned from a Pelosi aide earlier today that there was a laptop stolen from a conference room adjacent to her office uh, that was used mostly for presentations. It's unclear if that is the property uh, that is referenced in these charges, but is certainly uh, something of concern on Capitol Hill. And Richard Barnett of Gravit, Arkansas, has been arrested for uh, violent entry, as you see in that picture. Kelly, back to you. Kayla, thank you, Kayla Tausche. Coming up, the Fed went into uncharted territory last year when it started backing corporate debt. Was it successful or did it just prop up an already bloated market? Sheila Bear has some thoughts. She joins us ahead. Don't go anywhere. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their US oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back. We got the jobs report this morning, showed the economy lost 140,000 jobs in December. That's the first monthly decline since April. As surging virus cases and fresh restrictions took a toll on the recovery, but we did see some positive signs as well. Job gains were revised upward for October and November, nearly offsetting the December losses, and wages were surprisingly strong. Here to help us make sense of the data and the state of the economy is Michelle Meyer. She is head of U.S. economics at Bank of America Global Research. Michelle, great to have you here today. I mean, the number was pretty strong. That's like 10% annualized. Yeah, it was exceptionally strong, the wage number. But we have to be really careful reading too much into that. A lot of it has to do with compositional shifts in the um, labor market. So when you think about where the job cuts were concentrated, it was highly in leisure and hospitality, which tend to have lower paid workers. The fact that those individuals fell out of the labor market numbers means that overall wage growth just from a compositional perspective, look stronger. So unfortunately, we don't really have a good sense right now of wage growth. We haven't of the last several months ever since COVID hit, and we probably won't uh, for some time going forward until we've had a more complete healing in the labor market. But are you generally in the camp, Michelle, that thinks that those wage pressures are going to subside later this year? Because I read Jeffries thinks we're going to go, you know, to be maybe 3% wage gains. But if we don't, I mean, if they stay elevated, then that's a that's going to be a very different policy response from the Fed. So the economics would suggest that the wage pressure should certainly moderate just from the fact that the unemployment rate is still elevated. It's come down, but it's still high above where you should be in terms of full employment. 
So all else equal, that should lead to you know downward pressure on 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 wages, um, which we will find out after we've returned to some sort of equilibrium in terms of the composition of the labor market. So I would be in that camp as well that you're going to see somewhat slow wage growth. Um, that said, to your point, Kelly, if there is a surprise, if wages end up you know remaining elevated or actually accelerate from here. Um, that would then fuel the inflation narrative, which is already moving through markets. And we've seen a number of uh, different places raising their GDP forecasts considerably over the past week since the Democrats took Georgia. And it looks like um, I'm seeing estimates on the order of a trillion dollars of stimulus that is now being priced in with GDP estimates of six and a half percent growth for this year. Now, I don't know if that just got brought to a screeching halt with these comments by Senator Manchin to the Washington Post, where he's saying he's not necessarily on board with $2,000 stimulus checks. Now, that would only be $350 billion. But, you know, that gives us a sense that maybe there's not there's going to be more pushback to some of those big numbers than we thought. So um, how do you guys sort of take all put all that together and figure out how much fiscal stimulus is coming down the pike and what that's going to mean for growth? Sure. So at the moment, our forecast for GDP growth this year is 4.6%. So it's strong. Um, but we have a pretty weak start in Q1 with only 1% GDP growth. If another round of stimulus is passed, and I think that it is certainly leaning in that direction, the dollar amount will still find out. There's obviously you know, quite a lot of negotiation that has to go through before we can get that stimulus through the door again, especially after $900 billion was just passed. But if we get another round, call it in February or early March, that will then boost um, growth at the start of the year and provide an even bigger buffer to the consumer. And also remember right now that there's a lot of money already out there. There's over a trillion dollars of what we would consider excess savings um, that's already outstanding. Now, there's distributional issues with that. A lot of it is kind of unintentional saving. The people who probably need the money most are not necessarily the ones that are sitting on those piles of cash. So more stimulus will help, but there's already a lot of money out there. Um, so you have to think very carefully about the multipliers with every additional round of stimulus, how much it will then boost the economy. I think it will highly depend on how that stimulus is designed and how, how able it is to be targeted to the, to the people and the parts of the economy mm -hmm. that need the most. Exactly. Exactly. Whether it's checks or different kinds of investments, you know, we'll see state and local aid. A lot still to be decided. Michelle, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you. You got it, Kelly. Thank you. Michelle Meyer with Bank of America. Despite all this D.C. chaos and the back and forth, the stock market generally keeps ticking higher. Sharon Epperson is here now with a closer look at this disconnect, Sharon. And what should individual investors be doing with their money right now? Well, Kelly, you know, it seems this pandemic and the political fallout over what has happened at the U.S. Capitol cannot keep the stock market down. And in fact, some investors, particularly new investors, may be wondering how they can actually invest here with this disconnect as they're looking at their portfolios. For the most part, average investors appear to be following major market participants. You know, about 68 percent of the stock market is made up of institutional investors, whether that's banks or institutional advisors or pension funds. And the rest is individual investors. And many of those investors are investing in target date funds or using robo-advisors. Now, Dan Egan, who's the director of behavioral finance at Betterment, says that that may help take, take some of the emotions out of investing. And though you have to remember that before making an impulsive move, he says you should always be asking yourselves these questions. Are you excited? Is your heart beating a little bit fast? Do you feel a little bit of adrenaline? 
nobody makes good financial decisions in that setting. Nobody is going to make a smart long-term decision based upon short-term anxiety. So the first thing is almost a, a cooling off trigger to say, I'm really worried. I'm, I'm worried about this right now. I'm unlikely to make a smart decision for the, the next few years today. Now, one of the things that you can do proactively right now, instead of trying to time when or to get in or out of the market, is to choose investments that are socially responsible investments. And in that way, Egan says you can have a portfolio that really reflects your own views and your own values. Kelly. Sharon, are there other moves that you should make with your investments right now? Well, you know, that tried and true, stay the course. Maybe you don't exactly want to do that right now. What you want to do is review your asset allocation and make sure that it aligns with whatever your financial goals are and your investment goals, as well as your time horizon and your risk tolerance. You also want to keep in mind that now might be the right time to rebalance your portfolio. You've seen some strong gains. Maybe it's time to kind of trim some of that strength and add to the weakness and to some of those underperformers that still fulfill, will fulfill eventually your investment goals. And then also consider boosting that savings that savings for the safety buffer that will allow you to take more risk with your investments and also be able to sleep at night. Kelly? And that is the most important thing. Sharon, thanks so much. Good to see you, our Sharon Epperson. You can read more about this on cmc.com forward slash invest in you. Coming up, former FDIC chair Sheila Baer writing that the Fed's efforts to prop up the corporate debt market were a dud as companies not only didn't need the cash, they didn't spend it wisely. She joins us to discuss why and how it should end next. And take a look at the markets right now as we see a sell-off across all three indices on headlines that Democratic Senator Joe Manchin opposes $2,000 direct checks. The Nasdaq has now joined the other two in negative territory, down a quarter percent. The Dow's down 246. We're back in a moment. A new piece in the Wall Street Journal criticizes the Fed's corporate debt relief this year, saying most companies benefiting from the Fed's bond buying didn't need the cash to begin with and didn't spend it well either, going as far to say as the Fed's corporate credit facility should be left to die. For more, I'm joined by one of the authors behind this piece. Sheila Baer ran the FDIC during the financial crisis and is now a director at the Volcker Alliance. Uh, Sheila, it's great to have you back. And Thanks. I think a lot of people would say they're wary of the Fed doing this, you know, as a normal matter of business going forward, but that it would have made sense in response to the pandemic. Why do you disagree? Well, I was actually initially supportive, and uh, I assumed their focus would be on the primary credit market and how allowing large companies who were impacted by the pandemic access credit markets to continue operations. That's not really what happened. The, the bulk of the intervention was in the secondary market. It was really more of a, a bailout of, of, of investors and underwriters and a boondoggle for a lot of uh, companies issuing a, a lot of debt, which they probably didn't need. And we've got unprecedented levels of, of, of corporate leverage now. So it, it doesn't. The original idea was to support these companies as employers to continue operations. But that's really not what happened. The Fed didn't put any strings uh, on any conditions on this assistance. Uh, there were massive, have been massive layoffs of a lot of the companies benefiting from it, even while some of them are paying dividends. Uh, there were no restrictions on shareholder distributions or using this money for uh, executive compensation as well. So, no, I, I don't think, I don't see the evidence there that it really trickled down to Main Street. It was a huge boon uh, to corporate debt markets and, uh, and also has resulted in a lot of misallocation of capital, I think. The 
These low interest rates had already highly favored large companies over small companies, growth companies over value companies. That was just intensified uh, with the announcement of these unprecedented mm -hmm. facilities. So I know they were well-intentioned. Initially, it sounded like a good idea, but it did not work out that way. And yes, they should be allowed to die. I wonder if part of the issue is that we're looking too closely uh, at it here, because most of the people who have cited the importance of the, the, the corporate bond buying are doing so as it relates to the entire recovery. I mean, a lot of people really pin the whole recovery to that moment when the Fed said, we're going to go beyond just the usual toolkit to this additional measure, um, because it was really a psychological tell to everybody that we'll do whatever it takes. You know, the famous Mario Draghi yeah. line. So, you know, when you, you know, does it miss the forest for the trees here? Yeah. Well, I, it, certainly Wall Street celebrated it. it. It was great for the corporate debt markets. I don't, I don't have any uh, quibble with that. But is that what we want to use monetary policy for? Right. So I think government interventions, whether through monetary authorities or fiscal authorities, should be geared towards Main Street and labor markets and helping the people who can't help themselves. So, yeah, it was a, it was a huge boon uh, to Wall Street and uh, and widely celebrated, I'm sure. And again, initially, it seemed like a good idea. But, yeah, I think it's been overdone. And again, if there was evidence that this had trickled down into real job growth, that would be different. But we're seeing, you know, a weak unemployment report again today. There is this huge disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street. And the overarching problem is we keep relying on monetary policy to lead recovery. And when we get into these difficult times, monetary authorities just simply are not well equipped to get the help to Main Street that yeah. has to come through fiscal intervention. And yes, we are distorting capital allocation significantly in the process. Uh, people worry about consolidation, big companies getting even bigger. Yes, but again, a lot of that is being fed by ultra low interest rates and now this you know, extension of quantitative easing into corporate debt purchases. So I do think the Fed, well-intentioned, stand down, back off. Uh, corporate America doesn't need any more help from you. <laughs> and I'm hoping Janet Yellen and Mr. Biden's <laughs> new economic team will be very focused on Main Street when they come into office. Yeah, and we haven't even delved into the obvious piece of it, which is now the expectation that that and more will be on the table in any exactly. uh, response. Sheila, thanks so much. It's a great sure, piece. We appreciate you joining us. Thanks. Sheila Bear writing in the journal today. In a moment, mortgage forbearance numbers had been looking up in 2020, but the most recent data paints a more dire picture. We will dig into the latest findings and what it means for the housing market in just a minute. But take a look first at the dollar, which is surging in the past half hour to session highs as stocks are dropping. Uh, it's the flip side of the coin uh, from what we saw when there were expectations of big stimulus coming. Now, uh, Joe Manchin in the Washington Post pushing back on that to some extent. Uh, don't forget, you can watch us live on the go using the CNBC app. We're back in a moment here on The Exchange. Welcome back. A new year, but an old problem. Borrowers still unable to pay their mortgages due to the pandemic. The number is improving slightly of late, but as with so much in the economy right now, that improvement is weakening again. Diana Olick joins us from Washington with more. Diana? 
Well, Kelly, it's a real mixed bag on the mortgage bailout. New numbers out today show that as of this week, just over 5% of all mortgages, or 2.74 million, are in government or private sector COVID-related mortgage bailouts. Now, these plans allow borrowers to delay their monthly payments for up to a year. The payments are then either made up at the end of the loan or when the home is sold. Now, that is a decline of 92,000 or 3% from the previous week. And that's a lot, but it's because a large volume of plans expired at the end of December. Remember, the mortgage bailout is offered in three-month increments. Borrowers have to reapply every three months. So while it's good news that so many people came out, the concern is that this is actually the smallest improvement at the end of a quarter since the bailout started in April. To compare, at the start of July, after the first quarter, the numbers came down 9%. And at the start of October, after the second quarter, they fell by 18%. So this 3% drop now is far short of the improvement we had been seeing. And all this is happening as we head toward the one-year mark when the plan expires for those who started in April. So, Kelly, it's really not looking as good as we had hoped. Diana, does that one-year mark trigger foreclosures? Is that the next shoe to drop? Well, that is the next shoe to drop, and it's going to mean that the banks are either going to have to do mortgage modification programs, which they are already doing for some people, or there's going to have to be that conversation of, the plan is done, the bailout is over, can you sell the home perhaps instead of going into foreclosure? The difference between what we saw during the financial crisis and now is that we have a very strong housing market, a lot of demand for homes and very low supply. So a person who is in trouble could easily sell their home and potentially even pocket some extra money rather than have to go into foreclosure. But those who are in dire circumstances, they may be headed that way, Kelly. All right, Diana, we appreciate it. Thank you, Diana. Look, keeping tabs on the market for uh, in, down in Washington for us. Speaking of the market, uh, it has been a negative session here after some headlines earlier this hour from Joe Manchin. We will follow all of it next on Power Lunch. We also have business leaders from around the country weighing in on some of the riots in D.C. earlier this week. Billionaire commercial real estate investor Rick Caruso will join us with his thoughts and reaction. I'll join Tyler Matheson after this quick break. Don't go anywhere. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.